Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Architecture or Revolution, part three of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat. And let me say right at the top that there will be a part four. Our opening song is the instrumental version of Up Against the Wall by Group Home. In his 1923 book, Towards a New Architecture, French architect Le Corbusier wrote, The machinery of society, profoundly out of gear, oscillates between an amelioration of historical importance and a catastrophe. The primordial instinct of every human being is to assure himself of a shelter. The various classes of workers in society today no longer have dwellings adapted to their needs, neither the artisan nor the intellectual. It is a question of building, which is at the root of the social unrest today, architecture or revolution. A fascist anti-Semite, Le Corbusier also wrote, the technocratic elite, the industrialists, financiers, engineers and artists would be located in the city center while the workers would be removed to the fringes of the city. A quick recap of our previous two episodes might be in order. In episode one, we zeroed in on Chicago, Illinois and the reign of Mayor Richard Daley, the Elder, in order to see how buildings and neighborhoods were mapped out and residents penned into ethnic and racial zones, effectively conforming to the template originating with the Spanish Empire as a method of controlling and exploiting their colonial territories. In episode two, we took a closer look at that template as codified in the early 16th century in the Laws of the Indies, which detailed the design of resource extraction zones or cities down to the direction the winds should blow down the streets. It's here that body type characteristics are also codified and spatialized into racial categories. Without the space, there is no race. We still live inside the design and infrastructures first laid out in places like Mexico City to serve the desires of the state. And today, in architecture or revolution, we'll center the program on city planners active in the mid-20th century, like Harlan Bartholomew and Robert Moses. Bartholomew is best known for the destruction of the St. Louis Riverfront and displacing thousands of black families from Mill Creek, but his reach is national and his influence immense. Robert Moses was the colossus astride New York City who understood that politics and legal codes might change, but it's mighty hard to tear down the bridges that restrict the movement of black and brown New Yorkers, keeping them penned in and impoverished in neighborhoods organized by state abandonment. But we'll begin in the United States of the early 19th century with the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, which literally separated the so-called Old World from the New and barred any European nations from attempting to influence or control any of the sovereign states in the region. It almost sounds like a good thing. Right. And now, Architecture or Revolution, Part 3 of The State Made Visible with Rasul Mowat on Interchange on WFHB. You labeled the first episode that we did on the book, The State Made Visible. And I really appreciate that sort of title because that is, in a nutshell, um, the function then of the city. So so while the state is nebulous, 
it is the city that sort of makes it now finally visible because the city is the thing it needs to extract and dispossess you know it's the it without the city um it will not be able to accumulate its wealth um it it will not be able to sort of coalesce its workers right to you know make the uh products that help to generate um, that wealth, right? Um, in, in any respect, yeah, it popped into my head that War of the Worlds uh, movie, you know, where the the alien beings are they're just like sucking blood out of everybody. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah. Like I just imagine, like that, you know, the city is this like place where this you know giant alien is hovering over and just sucking out the humanity. Yeah, right. Um, no, that was an aside, of course. <laughs> but it just popped into my head while you were talking but, about. But, it. but again, I mean, I think. Uh, <clears throat> You know, it may get to some other particular points in the book, but it's interesting that you bring that fiction up because when the cities fall is when humanity fall, right? right. And yeah. it's not like uh, the alien crafts on any version of the world worlds are landing in farmland, oh, right. Kansas, right, right. and and because it's they're lost in, at that point, right? right. <laughs> and, and, what are we doing here? And so, in like farmland, Kansas, <laughs> and Yukon of Kansas, I mean, it's not that somehow once they take over that space, you know, everything falls. No, once the city falls, right. Uh, it is it is over. Right. Um, complete destabilization. Right, right, right. I know you reference uh, James Scott seeing like a state uh, a couple of times, right. but also um, it kind of goes hand in hand even with the idea of the you know the mo- the monocultural idea too, right? To to raise grain. <laughs> You know, it's, it's the same as how we're raising people in those same places, right? The, yeah. You have to extract labor and resources from the human in that same space as you're doing to the grain, right? They're, yeah. they're necessary together. Right. Like the state requires that grain, according to James Scott, and it makes sense, yeah. that re- you require the kind of product or resource that is mobile, that's easy to maneuver, that's easy to store, uh, but it has to be uh, farmed a particular way to able to get those kinds of yields and be able to store them. And those people are well originally were a s- enslaved population. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let's let's kind of deal with that analogy, which is great. It's not in the book, everybody. So, uh, <laughs> but the idea that um, thinking of it like a farm right. and you're growing these particular crops, you can't, you know, people who know farming, you can't just constantly grow crops onto the same right. acre of land. You have to right. sort of do this trading out, right? Yeah. Um, alternative sort of growing. And sometimes um, you either leave something bare or you grow some other type of crop right. on another right. particular space and then you switch over. Right. And this is what we then see with the cities, right? Yeah. Um, neighborhoods are rarely fixed forever. So you have this sort of rotating um, notion of placing people in a, in a particular location, so congregating them somewhere, right, right. and then displacing them, and then congregating, you know, right. and then displace, right? Yeah. And so there's this constant shifting around as needed throughout all of these years. Yeah, that's good. Rotating crops of, of people in <laughs> right. places, right? <laughs> so it's awful to say that we've been reduced right. to, like, wheat. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Right. No, that's good. That's good. So I did mention in our own conversations that I kind of, in my own thinking, had skipped past a lot of the history, like the uh, Monroe Doctrine. And I don't know that we need to. I mean, I don't know that we need to speak about it or not. To me, again, it's one of those things you're like, oh, you're just taught what the Monroe Doctrine is and not its operational work. Basically, I mean, if you think about it long enough, you get you start to understand it. If you spend any time thinking about history at all, you understand what it's doing. But it's just a thing you learn about in school, right? The Monroe, and it's crazy that it's the 
it's like one of the first things that happen in the in the country, really. Um, so, uh, do you find it as uh, like it's an essential aspect of this particular framing that it has to go into these kind of larger planning ideas, right? So we're going from this, the Spanish Empire as it, you know, and other empires as they seek to expand, but then this the empire itself as it begins to, you know, have to what create that legal structure of how it's going to operate? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you in the sense that uh, the Monroe Doctrine is something that we learn in school, but not in terms of what its really function or significance. It's just this sort of moment in history. But when you sort of get into the weeds of what it is, it seems like something that's born out of the 20th century, right? like just before maybe World War One, But no, exactly. Like you said, it's one of the earliest things that happened, right? There's, right. you know, you know, there's independence and, you know, uh, and then 1812, you have, you know, the war, you know, the final war with um, England. And so out of that directly afterwards, the next decade, you have the Monroe Doctrine being officially sort of decreed saying, um, all of you European powers, if you cross the Atlantic and have any affairs in North, South, or Caribbean, um, uh, America, we will deal with you, right. you know, with force. Um, and so just this notion of the United States taking that position when it wasn't yet even a global power, right. you know, in this, in that respect. The Monroe Doctrine is sort of like setting out this foresight of things that are going to happen towards the end of the century, like the Spanish-American War, right. and then sets in motion all of these other things that they're going to get into, you know, during the 20th century with, you know, destabilizing all these particular countries um, all the way up until the present. Yeah. Right? Um, but it's all set. It all starts with the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and the idea that it it appears like something as if it's acting on behalf of others, but the others didn't ask the United <laughs> States whatsoever. Right. You know, it's it's not like Mexico, Canada, and let's say uh, Jamaica came together and was like, "Hey, United States, could you sort of like right. deal with these people over in Europe that are going to come over and beat us up?" Right. You know, and no, it's just the United States sort of outright saying and yeah. establishing this particular point, and you have these. Um, uh, meetings that are taking place with emerging heads of states towards the middle and the end of the 1800s that are like reacting to like United States um, influencing or imposing their will on trade agreements, mm -hmm. trade agreements mm -hmm. that you know, Guatemala, whoever wants to sort of have with Spain or Portugal right. or Italy. And it cannot do it on its own because of the Monroe Doctrine. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part three of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on the planning and architecture of our modern sites of resource extraction, the cities we live in, and how the design of parks and bridges racialize our spaces and our thinking in service to the imaginary state. Yeah. 
how you how you set a doctrine out that is not just sort of protective of what you think is your space, but the assumption of land as therefore your particular use while asserting sovereignty and ignoring sovereignty other right. places as if that's okay. Like so you have to already have this sort of Again, it's almost a divine right of kings idea in your own mind, right? This is the divine nation, right? The divine, uh, the divine that isn't in a king, but is in a body of particular um, what archangels. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's the right. sense that you have that right to absolutely order the world at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're getting at is that sets up the rationale for the uh, Monroe Doctrine, but. What I see the function of the Monroe Doctrine is the protection of the interests of the United States at that time and for whatever perceived future. Right. And so it, it's, in a sense, creating the uh, these buffer territories, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I make the point that land turns into the territory when it sort of functions, you know, through the state, you know, or the state takes over. Mm -hmm. um, and so in this particular regard, it's... You know, the United States thinking about um, what could be threats in the future, especially after 1812. So they're beginning to think about needing to be a continental empire, you know, not just going up to the Mississippi right. or a little bit afterwards. No, it needs to be from East Coast to West Coast, um, right. because if, if it's not, then some other foreign power could be right next door. Mm. You know, and so that's then motivates the uh, expansion out west. Um, and then, you know, sort of thinking further, well, they're not really going to be able to expand too far north and too par far south. So why don't we just sort of come up with this decree, this doctrine to sort of say that, you know, while these other spaces are not ours, it is. Right. That's why I like so much about this is because I keep seeing these as just, you know, tools or mechanisms mm, of right. the state, yeah. which is not a thing to necessarily point to. To see capitalism as just, again, another thing within, that, you know, another strategy or another tool in the toolbox of the state and having to have language that understands what the state is or is not. Uh, and that's the beauty of it, right? That's the, the ghostly, right. um, I don't know, almost transcendental nature of it, right? It has. It does not have to have any official representation, even though it has representation, <laughs> right, right. right? You know, right. so there's not a building that you go to for the state. It's not a right. uh, annual meeting that is held for the state, you right. know, it, but it still functions nonetheless. Right. Uh, and yeah, it, you know, and, and, and to me, it just helps to sort of, Think about the state. It's something that is not. It's not something that was always on my mind, mm -hmm. you know. But it is something that sort of is a product of constantly asking the question of what else. Right. What else is in the way? <laughs> right. 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 Like you. You know. You meant you get to anti-capitalism from these this critique of capitalism, but before that, you may get into these sort of notions or questions of gender and race. Like you know, is you know, is it the fact that they hate? Certain populations, right. is that the basis for these actions? And then so you kind of get to this motivations of capitalism. But then you sort of think about what well, is capitalism the end? Right. And then you sort of then get to the fact that, no, there's this thing called the state. Right. That is the uh, sort of the driving force. And, of course, you know, what the state is is just a tool for the elite class to maintain right. its power. It's time for a break. 
This is the Chambers Brothers with Uptown from the 1967 release, The Time Has Come. Stay with us for more with Rasul Moad on the city as the state's blood-sucking alien when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Architecture or Revolution, part three of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moa. In this segment, we discuss St. Louis City planner Harlan Bartholomew and the insidious genius of Robert Moses, made visible in the height of bridge design in New York City. But first, should we cancel morally dubious historical figures or think about their work as service to the state? We had an email exchange about um, cancel culture. So uh, if you say John Locke is a white supremacist, then we have certain people work hard to say he's not a racist or he's not a white supremacist. He's a lawyer. He's he's actually a, a proponent of freedom and he's trying to do it within these mechanisms of law. They make good arguments, right? As you, yeah. as you, right. As you read right. along, right. Right. Um, you know, you still are able to see the, the service to the state of the work he does. Right, the service to the state of the of the men whose work he does for them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's John Locke doing the work. Yeah. This treatise of whatever it was, treatise of government. Right. I, I always hate the you know, anything any phrase that starts with both sides. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you kind of see with um, the entire conversation that it's all in service of the state. Right. Right. So not only is John Locke still in service of the state, even though maybe people misread, but also. The discussion of John Locke um, being somehow right. um, someone to you know disregard, as if John Locke merits that much of a conversation. Right. Point as if John Locke is the basis for our particular predicament, right. uh, or the or our savior. Or our if savior. we just go back to Either, the document, yeah. we'll figure out how to save ourselves. A absolutely, and right. so then we get into this conversation about 
um, individuals and, you know, nebulous, moral, upstanding character, you know, and not really sort of thinking about the fact that none of these things are really important at the end of the day. Um, The material conditions in which we live are the things that are important. So what's a greater example of canceling? Is it John Locke in what John Locke has written or what somebody is currently saying in the present day? Or is it completely displacing an entire, you know, neighborhood area slum clearance is a pretty good (laughs) example of cancel culture it's kind of crazy yeah you know i mean i know you had on uh on this show walter johnson Mm -hmm. and his particular um profound book broken heart in america and Mm -hmm. um and i think i mentioned to you that i thought that was the episode of the year last year you know know, incredible incredible um and you know, in that book, he focuses in on a piece that I try to also highlight, which is 20,000 people in Mill Creek uh, area of St. Louis are removed in a week, you know, just because they wanted that land. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's part of the uh, Bartholomew's plan. The city yeah. was that the 47, 1947 plan. That's or? right. Harlan, yeah. Bar- you know, Bartholomew. Harlan, yeah. yeah. Harlan Bartholomew. You know, so so yeah. this fantastic, fantastic city planner who is working on St. Louis and Louisville. Yeah. Well, the entirety of the first half of the 20th century is has Harlan Bartholomew's name all over it in yeah. a lot of ways, yeah. right? Like yeah. he's the city planner for so many Absolutely. of these cities. Well, he, had, he did a plan for Los Angeles, didn't get implemented, but you can see, again, it exposes what's to be done, you know, and the idea yeah, of what the state yeah. is operating through. And so a contemporary of his is uh, Robert Moses. Oh, right. And sure. it's not just a contemporary in terms of the same time frame, but also, you know, same sort of thinking. And right. and even though we've heaped so much into thinking about Harlan Bartholomew's, yeah. uh, you know, work and so on, when you sit there and look at Robert Moses, mm. uh, you know, he probably outdid Harlan Bartholomew, you know, when you sit there and think about the fact that he displaced actually probably something like 250,000 people over the expanse of his career. And he was never even officially hired as an architect, a designer, or a city planner in any particular regards. He was just a park commissioner. (laughs) (laughs) That's all he was. You know, either he was either the, the city park commissioner or the like county or state you know, at different particular points in time, but that's it. Like right. he n- never held any of other particular title, but yet he's responsible for displacing 250,000 people to build parks and parkways and playgrounds right. and beaches and all these other types of things. And and the fact that people could be that disposable for the sake of um, profit. The work of disposing and making disposable is a part of this, obviously. The work of keeping out, right? Excluding is a part of this as well. The work of how you do it, and you mentioned this throughout as well, you know, there are ways in which we don't, again, because these are our daily lives. These are the things that happen to us daily in our cities, the way our cities are designed, even our smaller cities uh, incorporate these same structures, so city planning, zoning, et cetera. So these are the things that happen to us onto us, you know, put put upon us and like, uh, you know, council planning, but even to have someone like uh, Moses create bridges that are designed to be too small, too low to fit traffic, certain bus traffic, traffic, in particular bus traffic, because, you know, only poor people and and black people and Latino people, Latinx people travel on buses. Um, That's, you know, that's baked into the design. Insidiously brilliant, right? (laughs) Right. You know, and uh, and so, right, you know, right. I mean, I know there it, it's I don't know if it's apocrypha, but, you know, but I have the quote in there. Right. But, you know, uh, one of the his aides yeah. remarked can... to the 
Uh, yeah, I have it on. Ch- it's chapter head of chapter three. Yeah, right? in terms yeah. of the biographer, I mean, it's a it's a profound quote. Uh, it really is, yeah. And so, uh, yeah. According to Sidney Shapiro, in a Gothamist interview with the author of that biography, that is he done with that biography? Oh, Robert, yeah, yeah, Robert yeah, Karen's yeah, like five yeah. volumes or something like that. It's ridiculously <laughs> huge, right? Um, Moses Robert Moses didn't want poor people, particularly people of color, poor people of color, to use Jones Beach, so they had legislation passed forbidding the use of buses on parkways. Then he had this quote, and I can still hear him saying it to me. Legislation can always be changed. It's very hard to tear down a bridge once it's up. So he built 180 or 170 bridges too low for buses. We stood there with steno pads and we have three columns, whites, blacks, others. And I still remember that first column. There was a few others, almost no blacks. The white would go on to the next page. This is how you can shape a metropolis for generations. And he did. Yeah, yeah. And he did. Um, 44 year career. Um, And so um, if New York wants to be something different, you know, from Robert Moses um, impact, it's got a lot of work to do. It's going to take them probably 100 (laughs) years to, you know, um, change up all the things that he left in place. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part three of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on the planning and architecture of our modern sites of resource extraction, the cities we live in, and how the design of parks and bridges racialize our spaces and our thinking in service to the imaginary state. The struggle with uh, pointing the finger at Robert Moses is to point a finger at a man who embodies Right. The, the ideological yeah. essence of the state, yeah. right? And to say Robert Moses is bad is to say one thing, but not all that you can say right. and all that could be said. The mechanisms exist for there to be a Robert Moses in the first place to be able to do that kind of work. But one thing that struck me too, as you said, the 44 years, you say? 44 years, you know, as so, a park commissioner. Right, right. <laughs> right like, as a so lowly park commissioner. So, so make sure right, right. Like he's not a, he's right. not a deputy mayor. No, right, uh, right. You know, Which would be less planner, right. Yeah. Right. So I, I think I think Hoover was in power for roughly 50-ish years, right? For, yeah. And and so we, and we, I say in power, and people are like, well, he was head of the FBI, or he was, before the FBI became the FBI, he was head of whatever that was, right? He made the FBI, he made the thing beforehand, made the FBI, right? right? And, and we forget that that's, that's the power, you know, that's the operational thing behind everything too. But it's like you say, you know, Castro is a dictator, Right or anyone else you might let we brand with this ideological difference, mm-hmm. right? Is is to say nothing about what's happening, you know, in front of you, underneath your own nose, right? To yeah. this guy, uh, uh, Hoover, in power as long or longer than Castro, right? right? More right. influence than Castro on the world, right? By far, right? Moses, more influence on the world than Castro would ever have, and more dictatorial power. Right. I than mean, Castro has. I mean, you're making a good point. I just want to make sure, you know, our, the people who are listening sort of understand, you know, that even if, let's say, Robert Moses was actually a very good person. Right, right, right. Should a person have this sure. level right. of control and should access to resources? Should there be this kind of system? Yeah, and, this, and, should, yeah. and should there be forces that lays all of their resources to at the feet of this particular person? Right. Um, you know, just to give people a sense of it. I mean, you already mentioned how many bridges, right. uh, 658 playgrounds, mm. uh, 416 parkways, right. 
and 2,567,256 acres of parkland. Nice. Now, you call this, now, this is the architecture of the city and architecture of the state, right? Or, you know, how it operates. So how do things like, well, we mentioned buses and bridges. Now, bridges do more than just restrict certain traffic. They also connect certain places a certain way. Right. But what about parks and... You know how how do those sort of embody the the function of state ones? Well, in, in some ways, um, you know, park park spaces can be incredible buffers mm. between one population and another. You know, we um, I didn't sort of talk about it in the book, but I know that from looking at other particular studies in uh, Dallas historical sort of park systems and how did how did they engage in actual sort of racial segregation? Well, they built parks um, that would divide the city up. And mm-hmm. so on one side of the park would be this small sort of black neighborhood subsection, you know, and then the other side of the park would be all the other desirable people, uh, whether that's, of course, you know, the white population or, you know, with few specks of acceptable black people right here and there. Um, and it was all throughout the city that mm-hmm. they laid this out. So on one hand, parks can become this incredible buffer. Um, but on the other hand, um, parks can also increase the value of certain property. So if New York is going to be a uh, economic center, you have to, one, attract businesses. Sure. You have to grow those businesses. You have to then entice the workers of those businesses to move in close proximity to the business. Right. Um, so that means you also have to create a way in which those workers will fill in the gaps of their life mm-hmm. around the places right. that they work and live, meaning that um, they will want a place to go and eat. Right. You know, want a place to go and exercise. They want a place to go and have fun. And so parks become this sort of desired um, thing to have in close proximity. So this is why then, you know, the property values of right. New York have gone up in so many regards. It's not just, just because of how important the city is, but the property is directly proximate to all of these types of things. It's very close to certain types of employment. It's also very close to um, green spaces and all these other types of things that um, now, again, add value. But now we also know in relationship to climate-based concerns, it cools the city. It cools those locations. Um, and, and, And so you begin to sort of see how even in the present day, things that were created back in the 30s are still having you know, impacts on right. certain populations of people. It's time for another break. This is Tiambe Lockhart with Escape from Stinktown. More on the extractive city as the visible embodiment of the transcendental state when Interchange returns on WFHB. Look at the sky. We're surrounded by the darkness, lover. Kiss me like the summer.
Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB, and this is part three of The State Made Visible with author Rasul Moat. In this segment, we discuss the brutalism of fascist French architect Le Corbusier, and then the way our cognition is shaped by our neighborhoods. How can we escape from Stinktown when we embody it? Now, also, uh, uh, the thing about parks is interesting, too. I don't know if they're they're quite, um, like, uh, uh, one-to-run related to, like, the plaza, right? But the idea of a space, this is, a couple of things are happening here, too, right? An ideological space, a place where, where uh, entertainment, uh, social life, culture, et cetera, happens um, or is created as a space where you can gather and, and, and gather in a particular kind of way, yeah, yeah. Uh, but also a place to be, um, organized or ma- managed in, in as a population. Also, spaces to be uh, herded into, in some sense, perhaps. Right? Like <laughs> right. there's this yeah. way in which yeah. it becomes it becomes a natural place for the state to act on you as well mm. within the park as an ideological space. Is it similar to then that the does the because the plaza in this you know Spanish map of the city right is the place in which the ideology of the city begins to work or is sort of. There's the market in there. There's mm-hmm. now the parks aren't quite like that, right? I mean, but they're not dissimilar, are they? I don't think they're dissimilar, mm-hmm. but we have to just remember that um, maybe in the southern part of what is now, of course, the United States, mm-hmm. and in the northern part, they have two different histories, right? Mm-hmm. The southern part is sort of conquered by the Spain first, right? right, right you right. know, um, and so. The city designs of many southern locations, Raleigh, St. Augustine, Charleston. And so you begin, you see the actual sort of Mm -hmm. um, same sort of Spanish plaza, whereas places like New York, you see that sort of uh, design element coming after or later. Oh, okay. um, Because, um, you know, it was... The was British, it, it was English. Yeah, it wasn't, right? a, yeah, it wasn't right. a Spanish uh, yeah, yeah. settler. They had a different design model for, at gotcha. first. Gotcha. Uh, but then, of course, when they see that the grid is actually probably a lot Pretty more useful. effective yeah. um, tool of design, then you then, when either cities need to expand, they use that uh, philosophy and structure. Or if there's some disaster, you know, right. a fire, right. so then the rebuilding, you know, creates that. And so, so New York, I mean, doesn't start with a, a plaza. But as you sort of see, as um, it it grows, it uses that sort of approach. So a central park could be considered the plaza for all of hmm. you know New York. And then you can kind of go into different other areas and you sort of begin to see how certain sort of areas. So hmm. is it uh, uptown uh, where uh, New York Trade Center, hmm. and, you know, I, I always forget the names, you know, of, of the you know, oh. directions in terms of New York. Oh, but, sure. But the idea of, you know, that sort of uh, green space that's in that particular area mm-hmm. sort of is the center of that right. area. So you have in every particular bureau, every particular area but outside of Central Park, you then you have these smaller plaza areas that everything else is built around. Mm. The beginning of this chapter also, uh, and this, again, this is chapter three, the beginning that uh, has a quote about Moses also has a quote by uh, Corbusier, which uh, is the French... Uh, architect, who right, yeah. br- brutalist architect, who yeah, we yeah. actually uh, talked about a little bit on the show before with um, Steve Volan uh, as a again a designer of the university type buildings and things of that nature, and the idea of how to 
like it was very specific and intentional mm-hmm. what he was mm-hmm. trying to do, right? Yeah, yeah. And the so Corbus, Corbusier is kind of the he's kind of an obvious right choice in some sense. You know, yeah. this guy is actually being very specific about how he wants architecture to work. It isn't, right. and it is it is it isn't the kind gentle. You know, it's not the Jeffersonian ideal of how architects will make people better students or better people, but rather we're going to organize people this way. Yeah, no, no. So, I mean, people kind of focus in a lot on his particular style of design for a building or a home. Right. Right. So he has a particular, you know, style that he's noted for. But people forget his city planning ideas, Mm -hmm. right, Uh, that he, you know, in some regards, Specifically with Paris, he was never able to implement. Thank goodness, to, I guess to some degree. <laughs> right. But you know, while we have in prior history of Paris, we have Houseman right. who redesigns Paris with the intention of preventing a future revolution. Halting the commune. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No more communes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, making these streets wider and so right. on, uh, making it far more difficult to create. You know, um, barricades. Uh, you know, look, you know, Le Capucier is uh, known for creating this zone tripartition sort of structure, meaning that the tripart system is one designed or set up for accommodations, another one for circulation, and circulation just for people's understanding is not for like air. It's right. for um, commerce, you know, so that's zone two. And then zone three is labor. So in the notion that that's all a city, <laughs> the city is comprised of just mm-hmm. that. So it has nothing to do with life, life development, life giving. It's just to sort of extract labor, yeah. having your workers go to sleep so they can get enough rest mm-hmm. to come back to work, and then ways to get their production to and from. Simple. That's it. Basic. That is, that's it. Yeah. Well, again, I like it because it is very clear. Right? <laughs> yeah. Very clear. And then you mentioned brutalism. So yeah. it's this notion of a particular design of a building that it's not just minimalist. You know, it, it's the notion that it's a lot of stone mm-hmm. um, um, and it's definitely an enclosure. You yeah. know, it looks like a carceral system. Right. Um, regardless of what it could be. It could be a hospital, right. but on the outside, it looks very much like uh, a prison. Yeah. Um, and so there then the brutalist style sort of, um, you know, conveys that um, notion of carcerality. It's pretty, like I said, it's pretty perfect for what it's, it's, it's not pulling any punches. It's not yeah. trying to hide itself. Yeah. Right? And so he has this quote where it's um, architectural revolution. So the right. idea that um, architecture can play this role of uh, suppressing dissent. Right. And also pacifying a population. Yeah. So on one end, um, preventing dissent from coming up. Uh, so preventing people from seeing each other to not only enjoy themselves, but also complain together, right? right. But the other part is um, you can give people uh, spaces for them to enjoy life so much that they won't see the need to dissent. Right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part three of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on the planning and architecture of our modern sites of resource extraction, the cities we live in, and how the design of parks and bridges racialize our spaces and our thinking in service to the imaginary state.
Well, I think it's in this chapter you note, um, yeah, you, you do note um, from, I think from The Wire maybe in this chapter, the hmm. one of the characters is just expresses that he he and the neighborhood are one and the same. Yeah, where's Wallace? Yeah, well, yeah, right. right. He, <laughs> yeah. And the, he and the yeah. neighborhood, this is who he is, yeah, yeah. right? So in a sense, that's the, the expression of this architecture is another part of how one's identity is formed, how Completely one thinks fixed. of anything yeah. About oneself, about one's other other neighborhoods, about other people outside the neighborhood. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, for just to assume there's like five people who have never watched The Wire, or it could be more than that. It could be. It could be. It's yeah. a pretty intense thing to watch. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. There, there are some people who. It's more real to me than like people love The Sopranos. <laughs> I don't know how it's so lovable, but the, people love The Sopranos, right? Love it, yeah. And The Wire is loved in the sense that this is the greatest show ever. It's respected, to me. exactly. Right. It's, it's not, not a show you love. <laughs> right, right? right. I can't love Stringer Bell. Oh, he's a great character, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And I definitely don't love a lot of those characters, even, any of them, really. I've been trying to think about that, right? Like, who's my favorite? Right, you're not you're not yeah, fixing dinner. You're not fixing dinner to sit down to watch the wire. <laughs> right. Right? Like, yeah, you got to pay attention too, right? <laughs> exactly. And it's it's yeah. it's it's a terrifying show in a lot of ways, but it's so it seems so normal. I mean, it's every day, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was a great. I mean, for me, it was a great opportunity to always teach this course on mm-hmm. the wire because um, constantly talking about a city and the function of a city, which was the intent of David Simon kind of maybe put me in a head, uh, headspace to right, eventually right. get to this book. But what you're describing is a character by the name of Wallace, who is you know played by, of course, you know, superstar Michael, now. Michael B. Jordan right, right. Um, at age 14. Um, and I think it it's at a particular point in which he had an opportunity to live with family um, away from the city oh, right, yeah. um, in a safe space. Yeah. Um, and he ends up coming back. Um, and where is he coming back to? He where does he work? He works in the drug trade, um, right. and he works in the low rises, public housing. Um, that's brutal, right? Oh, so you yeah. have the towers and the low rises, so minimum quality living uh, that's now at this particular point poorly kept by the city. Mm. Um, right, you know, residents are not supposed to be mowing their lawns or planting flowers. That's that's not their responsibility, right? It's not their responsibility to replace lights and and hallways. So, right. when, when so when people have this sort of uh, notion right. of look how horrible this place is, they place the blame on the tenants right, of right. the public housing yeah, unit. But, right. but yeah, and so he describes, in the, you know, he makes this comment saying that you know the space of uh, the low rises is him. Regardless of right. the opportunity to leave and to leave and be safe, um, he'll, he's more willing to take the risk mm. of being in the place that defines him. Right. Um, even though it really doesn't define him, right. but since that's all that's all he given, knows, right? Yeah, that's yeah. all he knows, right. and that's all they're given. Right. Right. Yeah, right. it's him. Yeah. No, that. No. Yeah, and to say it's all he knows is literally it's in, it's his entire conception right. of what life is or should be as far as he can deal with, right? Yeah. He's he's very lonely when he goes, I think he goes to grandparents or uncle or aunt or somewhere, yeah, I forget yeah, what. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's cut off from everything. I mean, yeah. It could be a good place to start fresh, right? but it's hard to do that kind of thing anyway right. for anybody. But And spoiler though, of course, you know. <laughs> the spoilers, you know, Russell. You know, he's of course what? one of the earliest deaths, right? It's that, terrifying. That, that, yeah. that everybody. Because you love him too. That's right. He's such a good kid. Yeah. 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 And, and they show, you show him being a stand-up guy all the time too, right? Taking care of all Taking these Taking care of all those kids. And they've got, you know, they're all like seven mattresses in one room. Yeah. And, you know, and these making, are not his kids at all. No, I need to make sure they, yeah. they um, brush their teeth and get something to eat before they go to school. Everything, right? Yeah. 
It's time for another break. This is Bill Withers with Harlem from the 1971 release, Just As I Am. Stay with us. Summer night in Harlem. Man, it's a really hot. Well, it's too hot to sleep. I'm too cold to eat. I don't care if I die or not. Winter night in Harlem. Oh, radiator won't get hot. Well, the mean old landlord, he don't care if I freeze to death or not. Saturday night in Harlem, everything's alright. You can really swing and shake your pretty thing. The party's out of sight. Sunday morning here in Harlem. Everybody's all dressed up Are the hip folks getting a home from the party And the good folks just got up Ah, crooked delegation wants a donation Send the preacher to the Holy Land Hey, hey, Lord, honey, don't give your money to that Welcome back to Interchange. In our final segment of Architecture or Revolution, we examine the fact that neighborhoods and buildings and people are abandoned by design. And we end with the arbitrary identifications the state uses to justify its cruelty, all in the service of wealth accumulation. This is, I think, a really fascinating point that I don't think about ever, right, is that the city isn't taken care of uh, to a purpose. And this is this comes in one of the later chapters, I think, maybe the yeah, dis- disavowal. When you read it, you're just like, oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not like it's a hidden thing that these things happen, yeah. right, and that they're they're managerial, they're process-oriented, they're, they take on the, the business speak. In fact, uh, you, you cite Peter Drucker, who is like the managerial guru of the 90s, right, uh, on, on organized abandonment, right? Right, as and a And that's philosophy. what this is, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so a credit to Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who um, was in a you know, fantastic uh, interview, I believe, on The Intercepted maybe mm. – Two or three years ago, because of course nobody knew of Rules and Gilmore before, you know. So now, you know, that podcast, you know, introduced her, reintroduced, introduced her to a a greater public. She's a golden gulag. She's been engaged in uh, notions of abolitionist geography for for decades, right? right? Um, But anyway, uh, she was making this particular point about organized abandonment. And so I tried to look into Mm -hmm. it a little bit further, and that's where I found that. The creator of it is Peter Drucker, and it's this management philosophy of um, as you begin to see losses, um, you know, financially within a business structure, and you're and there's not set ways or given ways for you to generate more revenue to offset 
those uh, costs, then the best thing to do is begin to identify sections or areas or units within your um, business operation that you can sort of siphon off right. resources. So don't fund it anymore. Right. Right. And that helps to increase now revenue right. in new ways. And so she makes, she uses that term as a potential. So there's no evidence that this is used as an official philosophy, but it, ha it must be right where you sort of see that mm -hmm. same sort of approach in terms of city government. And it kind of goes back to what we were joking about in terms of public housing. You know, again, yeah. people have this negative viewpoint of the citizens of or residents of public housing right. as if they're responsible for taking care of this right. space. And it's the same thing as a city, as if, you know, residents are supposed to put lay down concrete, right. you know, f you know, fill in potholes and take care of street lights. Maintain the infrastructure. Ex exactly. Yeah, right. You know, and no, like there's a city that's responsible for that. So when you begin to sort of recognize that. All of these abandoned public schools right. and other facilities are, you know, based upon a city government that has chosen not to put any more resources right. in there. That's abandonment. And what Ruth Wilson Gilmore is sort of saying and using Peter Drucker's point is that it is by design. It is not an accident. And and you recognize it in the sense that, yeah, it they, they have the resources and because you see it being deployed and allocated to other particular parts of a city, but then other parts of the city don't get any. It's easy to talk about this frequently in racial terms. It's right, easy right. because you, yeah. because mostly it's visual, mm -hmm, right? We, mm -hmm. we express these things visually. We see what's happening to whom mm -hmm. um, and where, um, but it doesn't really matter what the population is or what the, the particular shibboleth of the moment is, right? Or the idea that it's race or deviant sexuality or right, you know, right. immigration. Yeah, yeah. Or it doesn't matter who you need to corral here, there, and anywhere. It's just what you use to do it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, this is a manufactured psychology. Like when we talk about racism, we forget that that's a construct as well right. that, yeah. that fits within this geography as, as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, on, on one hand... You know, and again, just for the audience, you know, Doug is not saying that race is, does not matter. Right, right, you know, just right, want to right. make sure. <laughs> like, it does matter. I'm, right. just, I'm just saying yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. But, but you're saying that, um, you know, so one, we're, <laughs> we're getting at this sort of idea, notion that I think I'm making an argument in the book is that one, race has a function. It's not the end or the aim. Right. It's a function to get to the aim. And what's the aim? The aim is not to decimate a racial population. The right. aim is to extract <laughs> resources right, right. as best as possible from everything. So labor, your time, uh, you know, the land, um, all these types of things. And that, you know, for what? To accumulate wealth. Right. That's all that, that this is for. That's the basis for the idea of the social construction of race that Du Bois sort of gifted us. Uh, and I'm just making uh, maybe either an argument or extension of it and saying that it's not just social construction um, mm. that sets up the production of race. It is the fact that it's spatially produced. Right. And this is where going back to Daniel Nimser is so important where, you know, he, he lays out that this has this history right. um, in the actual infrastructure right. of the colonial city. Yeah. Segregation is made. It's, it's, it's yeah. completely made. And for what purpose? Uh, one, to, you know, suppress threats to profit, but also to extract more profit, yeah. you know. So you're going to place um, your labor class close to the areas of work. And if they become threatening, you're going to move them away um, from the areas of work. 
but not too far yeah. because you still need to ex- continue right. to extract. No, you've got a good map for that too. There's a map for everything in here, right? There's a good map for how they, you move the, the group over here, yeah. and yeah. yeah, they fit on the map in that space. Uh, which is, uh, you know, again, I still like the, you know, like your point, which I hopefully use in the, you know, next edition yeah. about the farm crops, right? You know, oh, yeah. you know, so the idea of just rotating, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is part three of The State Made Visible with Rasul Moat, author of The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. Our focus is on the planning and architecture of our modern sites of resource extraction, the cities we live in, and how the design of parks and bridges racialize our spaces and our thinking in service to the imaginary state. That's what we're getting at in terms of race. It has a function. And so then race is arbitrary and it becomes a useful thing to use so that then the rest of the population will buy into um, the initial wave of this practice. No one would have a problem with you dealing with those filthy people. Right. You know, um, and so after you deal with those filthy people, then all of a sudden you start turning to other populations. They're like, you know, oh, wait a minute. And, and too late, you know, it's already in motion. Yeah. You, use um, the same, you just use the same words to characterize the words. problems. Yeah. And it's always quite important quite. for us to think about things internationally, too, mm-hmm. uh, which is also the point of the book. This is not unique at all to the United States. You mm-hmm. know, this, this city design of extraction of labor right. and moving around people are in every single city. There's no mm-hmm. different type of right. management of cities. So even though we may think so-called countries are different, you know, when we look at how cities are managed, they're all managed in the exact same way. And so in in certain cities, they may have um, homogeneity in terms of uh, racial categorization, but yet they're still... uh, They're still implementing this practice. So it struck me that... um, Again, when you when it was architecture or revolution, mm. it's it's also race or revolution. It's also you know you know anti women or revolution. Mm. You know, it's mm. anything that you can pop into that frame or to create this mm. thing mm. that mm. moves people yeah. in a certain way or gives them that cognition right. to do a certain thing a certain way, or they recognize they're being maneuvered and right. whatnot. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. solidarity and a revolution. Now, the question is, what's revolution? But that's a different question, I'm sure. Or yeah, what happens right. after revolution? Usually a, a worse state, what can be the end of the state? And I think you and I have talked about collapse generally, but the state form is what's in us. Yeah, Most of us are mm-hmm. you know, embodied forms of the state. And if revolution comes, how do we reform? Yeah, and that's a difficult question right. to really answer because right. similar to Robert Moses' point about infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. People can legislate right. differently in the future, but it's hard for them to change that <laughs> right. infrastructure. Right. And so we can sort of see, especially during the 60s and 70s, where there was this great sort of volume of independence movements that resulted in mm-hmm. new countries forming. Um, it ends up just becoming new states forming right. because the infrastructure didn't change. Right. So um, it might have been a new power. They're still operating from the same cities, and they're operating using those same cities right. in the same way, even though it's a new regime or a new sort of complete 
government. You know, so they still are using roads for circulation. They're still having certain um, facilities for accommodation. There's still certain locations for labor. So if if that infrastructure remains, then maybe, you know, to some degree, which is not in the book, maybe to some degree, that's what ends up happening in uh, in ways in which the state ends up being duplicated or the negative consequences of having a state end up duplicating, yeah. even though there's been a changeover. Yeah, it re- reproduces itself from, from its space, as you say. Yeah, already. yeah, yeah, and, you know, yeah. The space hasn't changed. Because you sort of see, especially in certain um, cases, uh, there's this always this major capital campaign, you know, launch where all of these new... Um, buildings are constructed, you know, when, um, you know, Nazis come into power, right. you know, there's all of these um, buildings are demolished and there's all these new buildings that are, you know, constructed up, even though they campaign off of, you know, providing whatever resources to the people, right, right? Um, and providing jobs and employment. At the end of the day, it just ends up turning into another state that ends up creating uh, wealth inequality for the, the country. And so the only thing that helps generate more income is now colonizing the rest of Europe. That's our show. We'll close with Woza Moya by South African bassist Herbie Twaley off the 2021 release At This Point in Time, Voices and Volumes. Woza Moya can be translated as Come, Spirit of Change. Rasul Moat's book is The Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, the State and the City Between Us, published by Rutledge. Join us for the conclusion of this four-part series next week and find links to the previous episodes and other related items at wfhb.org. And continued special thanks to Rasul for our music selections. I'm Doug Storm. I produce this series for Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Turn you on.